Psst. Hey, you. Want access to exclusive secret ops intel? Check out the link in the description. Many years ago, it was a really good exchange on Twitter. Somebody was asking Elon Musk about the Tesla car product. And he said, no, our cars aren't the product. The factory is the product. And if we can get the factory right, then we get the cars right. That's how I think about what Chris does, is Chris is building our fundamental product that everybody leans on. Hi, Secret Ops listeners. Your host, Ariana, here to give you a little bit of context on a very special episode that we've got today. For the last six months, we've been hearing from specialists within the field of operations, from revenue operations, chief operating officers, data scientists, solution architects, you know, the list goes on and on. And we've really gotten to preview what it's like behind the scenes as an operator. The big question I get, though, is as somebody who loves operations, how do I get someone else to understand the importance of it? And how do I work with people to build operations? Now, this episode is going to do exactly that. Today, we are speaking with David Perel, founder of the business Rite of Passage, as well as Chris Monk, chief operating officer of Rite of Passage. They have kindly offered to give us a peek into the dynamics that go in between a founder and a COO and building the operations of the business, not just from the gears and the technical details, but also from how you do that and enhance how you talk to your team, how you work with your team and build it together. It's a treat. I just love talking to both of them. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode and feel free to share feedback if you want more of this. Enjoy. David, Chris, thank you so much for being on Secret Ops today. Like I said in the intro, this is a bit of a special episode and I I do feel like we're getting a secret inside scoop behind the scenes in building a business, not just from the lens of an operator, but also from the lens of a founder. So to kick off, I just want to thank you so much for being generous in your knowledge and open and sharing this experience. I really think it's going to help a ton of other folks learn from both of you. So thank you. Of course. Let's jump in. Why? Why did you want to share your story? Why were you willing to, to come on to Secret Ops? Yeah, I think for me, it's because I'm a massive ops nerd. uh, And I think David is a bit of a nerd in a different way as well, that we both have this love for how to build good businesses, how businesses work, how people can be effective and happy and all of that in their working lives. And I think the more that we can have positive conversations about how to run small and big businesses better, uh, that to me is is the end goal. Yeah, I think for me, we're, I'm very excited about the changes that are happening at a really macro level with work and the possibilities of remote work. And Chris and I have a lot of fun talking about what remote work opens up and really thinking through whenever there's a new technology, it starts off, you know, you have this with the car, right? They say, 
that if you had asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And Chris and I are really interested in the car and what does the car uniquely open up, highways and suburbs and all of that. And really thinking through, if we take remote work seriously, what becomes uniquely possible, both from an efficiency perspective, but also from a quality of life for people who work at Rite of Passage perspective too. Amazing. I'm even more excited after that. So let's set the audience in your world of Rite of Passage. David, can you talk to us about the origin story of the business, You know where it started, how it grew, and, and where you're at today? Yeah. So I hated school. I <laughs> hated too. school and I really didn't like writing. And I eventually learned that writing on the internet was one of the biggest opportunities in the world and it was worth getting good at. And also, it wasn't learning that I hated. It was school that I hated. And I think that in society right now, we think of learning and education as being synonyms. And often, they're actually antonyms, that when you are in a world of education, learning actually slows. And a lot of our schools that we've created, they are catering to the averages and they actually go against and hurt people who are really curious and want to move quickly. And I spent 20 years in a classroom thinking I can do way better than this. And all that time ended up creating a lot of the energy and the impetus for Rite of Passage. So in 2017, I took an online course called Building a Second Brain by Tiago Forte. And I saw the potential of what online education could be. Something about the experience was was religious or psychedelic where you're a person right before and then you are a different person right after. And after I took the course about a year later, I called Tiago and I said, hey, I would love to make a course with you. He jumped and said, absolutely. And we started slowly, but it was always around this idea of let's get people writing on the internet and it has grown over time and we've we're about to begin our 10th cohort and now it's just exploded we started 2022 with a team of 3 brought on chris about a third of the way through the year he became our coo put together a plan to really grow this thing and now we're at roughly 20 full time and teaching almost 1000 students per year at what point in that journey did you think, oh, this is actually working <laughs> and I need to keep going with this? Was that you know, off the bat, you thought, all right, I see en- engagement right away? Or did it take a while to, to really get your footing? There were two moments. So the first moment was whenever you start something, it's an experiment. And the first moment was at the end of our third cohort. I was in Mexico City with Will Manon, who's our director of student experience, my co-founder. He's our chief product officer. And I was sitting in the room. And at the end of every cohort, the students go around talking about what they get out of the course. And I don't know what happened, but I was just utterly moved to tears in this moment, hearing student after student talk about the transformations that they'd had in the past five weeks. Things like, I thought that I was joining a writing course, but I ended up getting a whole new identity. I see a vision for myself and the future of the world and society that I didn't see five weeks ago. And that was after the third cohort. I remember going out for a beer with Will after. I remember I got a, ordered a Modelo at a, at a restaurant. You know, they're playing trumpets and all that in Mexico City. Like it was a, and, then, and then they had the mariachi band in there. We we're just sort of celebrating. And then that gave us 
big push of momentum. And then I remember after the fifth cohort, that was the COVID cohort. So we did it May 2020. And we got a video from our students 35 minutes long from, you know, must have been 40 or 50 different students thanking us for the experience that we had delivered. And I was in that moment and those moments just blown away with the potential of what we had and now just continuing to really try to fulfill it. That's special. It's it's easy to get jaded. We literally were just talking about this. It's easy to get jaded as you become older and to adulthood and to be able to have those moments that snap you into, I don't know, um, a part of the world or a part of learning that you didn't think you could even see is, is really special. So let's talk about the business is growing. You know, you've got almost 10 cohorts now. What was the point at which you realized I need to factor in somebody in operations? I need a COO. Yeah. You know, often the most profound realizations come from the most mundane of moments. And I was in Denver with Will, who's co-founder, and we were talking, we were planning for an upcoming cohort. And there was a card that we wanted to create on the site. And the card was basically a mini case study. And Will and I have a very similar personality type. We're both highly creative, highly frontier, good in white space, not finishers, not finishers. And it was like the most, it was a very small project. And we got in a raging argument about who was going to be responsible for it because deep down, both of us knew that it wasn't going to get done. And that pattern was showing up all over the place. Good ideas, good vision, great student experience, messy business, horrible tracking, no systems. And from there, we brought on a recruiter who had been recommended to me uh, by my friend Jeremy Giffen. And we worked with the recruiter. We must have gone through 60, 80, 90 different candidates. And we had a rule that we wouldn't work with anyone outside of North America. It was a hard rule. And he was a, it was 8, 9 a.m. one morning. And he said, hey, I just spoke with a guy named Chris Monk, who is exactly what you're looking for. He lives in London, and I know that that is a hard and fast rule, but this guy is so good that you need to talk to him. And indeed, Chris was so good that we broke many of our rules to bring him on. Oh, my. I mean, for context, I do know how good Chris is at all the things, and so I totally understand. <laughs> now, Chris, let's talk about the interviewing process and rite of passage. I know you come from a technology education background. You're also very technical. I mean, you've got a gazillion skill sets, but what about the mission and the people drew you to wanting to work with them? Yeah, so it was an interesting, the, uh, I've told this story many times, including to the, the recruiter who got in touch. Um, I'd initially been sent a message on LinkedIn, you know, classic, uh, classic thing, but the subject line was not a good subject line if you want to get someone to pay attention to the message you sent. I fed this back. It's all, it's all good now. But I'd actually just been turned down for a different role that I was very excited about in a completely different world, the world of crypto trading, uh, which is worlds away from, from where we were. I was very down about that. And I thought, yeah, what do you do when you've been you've fallen off the horse? You've, you've got a bit of a rejection is you hit LinkedIn. And we got back on LinkedIn. I was in Cyprus actually with, with one of my best buddies. Have a beer, get on LinkedIn. That's how you, you resolve those situations. And I started going through these messages. And I went back and I saw this message that was, it was called Rite of Passage Thoughts. And I just sort of, it, it flashed up on my phone and I just 
ignored it. I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what that is. It was only when rereading, I was like, oh, this is a job. This is a job that that sounds interesting. So then, you know, pinged back the the, the recruiter and was like, yep, I'd love to have a chat. And then backwards and forwards. And then I think the moment he realised I was serious is when we sort of failed to arrange something for a while. I sent him my entire availability for the next two weeks, broken down into half hour chunks. Uh, and I think that was the point he went, oh, this guy really wants to talk to me. Like, we want to have a conversation <laughs> about this. Uh, so then we had that first conversation. I'd seen the information about the business. It was a business at a really exciting point in its journey. I'd been with my previous company, you know, Decoded Ariana, when I think I was the eighth person to join and had been with it through that journey up to 110, something like that. And this was a company back again at that sort of four, five, six person size. So I thought, this is something I've done. This is something I've learned a lot about and would love to have the opportunity to do it again, given everything that I've, I've learned beforehand and the growth that the company had shown so far and what they were doing was really interesting. You know, writing is a skill that everyone needs and not enough people appreciate. So I thought, yeah, we'll have a conversation. It sounds exciting. It's my, my skill set they need. And then I met David for the first time and, you know, that was it really. This is the thing I want to do. And that was on the, on a Tuesday, I think. And then on the Wednesday night, it was the penultimate week of the cohort that was running at the time. And so David said, look, come along tomorrow night, see what we do, see, see how we do Rite of Passage. So I stayed up till midnight my time because it's 6 p 7 p.m. ET, most things happen. And I was over in London, jumped on this in my pajamas, but you know, bottom half pajamas, top half looking professional, jumped on this course. Looking fabulous. Yeah, looking <laughs> the top great. up, yep. Uh, except I got relegated to downstairs because my wife was asleep upstairs, so I couldn't be in my, in my normal study. And I got goosebumps you know, from the first time that I saw a session in progress. It gave me an incredibly special feeling. In fact, the same feeling that I got the first time I walked into my previous role, Decoded. The first time I walked in and saw them running a training session in their space in London, that was in person. But I got this feeling of some very special people doing a very special thing in a very special way. And from that moment on, I knew I wanted to be part of it. Then I spoke to Will, then I spoke to Dan, then I spoke to Dean, and every single one of those conversations just meant I was more and more convinced that, that I wanted to do this. And then we got to the final interview, and I, my memory of it is we just basically laughed for about 45 minutes while talking about where the business could go and what we could do with it. But it was just, it, was a, it, it didn't feel like an interview, it was just pure joy, uh, as I think the guys were in Denver um, and having that conversation. And... Then uh, yeah, they, they did the classic good recruitment trick of saying, well, we'll get back to you early next week. Four hours later, I think I got the email saying we want to work with you. And uh, and that was it. Yeah, I was completely well. Actually, I wasn't completely sold at that point, if I'm going to tell the truth. I was mostly sold. Um, but yeah, it was a big step. It was leaving a job I've been in for nine years, joining a new startup in the US. I never met these people. You know, this is a post-COVID world where you're making life-changing decisions about joining a company run by two people who you've never met in person. And so I sent this email back to them saying, I'm really flattered. I'm really excited. This has made my Friday. Um, and then I panicked that making my Friday didn't sound grateful enough. So I then said, oh, you've made my month, even my year, maybe. Then I signed that off. Like without my name, I signed it off cute instead of Chris because of autocorrect. Then panicked because I just signed off cute for these two. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you saw the cute message at the end of it, and it was just like, oh my God, it's like second email saying I'm excited about a job and signed it off cute. Awful. 
Yeah, I sent this email back, just like about really boring logistical stuff, um, but also things like about paternity leave because I hadn't, you know, it was scary. I knew I had a baby coming, I hadn't mentioned that, and just got the best email back from uh, from Will and David that I immediately went, "This is the company that I want to join because these guys want to build the kind of company that I want to build and be part of as well." Thank you for sharing that. And also, uh, autocorrect is is the best and the bane of my existence. Yeah, it was just, you know, that moment of, oh, it's gone and I've signed it cute. Do I hope they don't mention it or do I, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it was, but it, it was all okay. It worked out fine. Listen, I guess, I think cute sealed the deal, but, you know, David just doesn't want to say it. That's just like, that was saying. <laughs> well, I actually got really lucky because I lived with a chief operating officer who, as we were living together, uh, he was going through the process of selling a company for 40 or $50 million. So I saw what it was like to live with one. And I told the recruiter, find me Alex, because if I could have Alex, then it would be, it would be great. And I think that hiring, what we find is we often need to go through multiple iterations of a job description, but this one was so clear and so easy, which allowed me to then speak to a recruiter and say, this is exactly what I want. This is what we're going for. And we wanted somebody, I wanted to hire somebody who had done what we were doing already. And Chris had built Decoded and taken it from, I think it was the sixth employee at Decoded or something like that. And then it, the company had grown quite a bit, had worked all around the world remotely. And there were so many parallels that I, didn't feel like Chris would come on and be like, okay, how do I do this? He would say, I know exactly how to do this. Just get out of my way and let me go execute, which is exactly what happened. Do you think, because I, I wanted to ask David, I mean, now that I know that you were living with someone that was a COO, <laughs> you had a pretty good idea of, of what operations is. When you were looking for a COO, was it still a little bit of a mystery or or were you very clear on what operations would do for your business? Because that you had such a close connection to somebody that was that thing. I was pretty clear. And I think it was because I had also a very keen sense of where Will and I lacked. And I think that the cardinal sin when you're running a company, people are like, oh, what are your strengths and weaknesses? I think that that's less important than just acknowledging your weaknesses and being upfront about them. And people go wrong when they try to surpass their circle of competence not when they have a bunch of weaknesses. And so what I tried to do was get close and personal with my weaknesses, acknowledge them, try not to have too big of an ego around, hey, I still need to do those things, and then get really clear on the things that I am good at. But Chris's skills are so inverted with mine that it was quite easy. And I think this is the thing with the COO. I wouldn't say to, to an average person, go hire Chris. That's not what it is. It's go hire the inversion of who you are and being clear about what do I bring to the table and where do I falter and then find somebody who's really good in those areas. And if you can be clear about that, then you'll go out and hire a good COO. That is an incredible insight. I, because I think that I often get the question, you know, what is what is it that a COO does? Do they organize? Do they do this thing? But COO can just depend on the industry and what you're doing. It can shape shift. So to have an awareness of where your weaknesses are, I think also a vulnerability to share those with others and to find somebody that can help you support you on your weaknesses. That's I, I hate to say it, but I think it's rare and it 
it sounds like you, I don't know, are encouraging others to approach it the same way. If I'm wrong, please let me know. But that sounds right to me. We can couch it words like vulnerability, but this was much closer to a life raft for me. I mean, I was really drowning under the weight of my commitments. And I mean, this was this was my Hail Mary of desperation, much closer than some sort of noble and virtuous way of thinking about my own psychology. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, so let's get into the first three months. Chris comes on board. We always know that the first 90 days, I always think of it as the wild, wild west. Like you're trying to figure out the business. You're trying to figure out each other. I guess, Chris, can you talk me through what that initial moment was walking into the business? Did you have a particular plan in place of how you wanted to approach assessing things? Um, was it just jumping in and seeing? Talk to me about that. Yeah, so it was really interesting because um, over here in the UK, we have crazy long notice periods that uh, everyone in the US cannot wrap their heads around. But uh, obviously, I wanted to leave. You know, I've been with Dakota for nine years. I wanted to leave them in good shape. So uh, I think we agreed 10 weeks I would have between handing in my notice and actually finishing at Decoded. So the first 10 weeks at Rite of Passage, I was working part time. I'd finish at Decoded at 6 p.m., start doing my Rite of Passage work at 6 p.m. and start doing that. It was a, a pretty intense time. I don't think I had a first 90 day plan. Uh, I've, I've read the book, The First 90 Days, but that works really well in a large organization where a lot of the advice is come in, use your two ears, one mouth, and just sort of absorb things. That doesn't work at startup scale. That, you know, if I'd arrived and said, for the first three months, guys, I'm just going to sit here and listen. I think they would be really confused as to what, why he'd hired me because three months in startup world is a huge amount of time to just sit there and you know, absorb that information. So, And you had to come on and, and start executing. I think... As David said, one of the best things was there was a lot of challenges that I just knew how to solve. You know, there were communication things, right? We need to get Slack. We need to implement that. That's the platform that, that we will need to get with. We need to get Google Workspace rolled out to everyone. So we're working on the same domains. We're using Google Docs, shared drives, you know, real nuts and bolts stuff that is really important to being able to, to, to scale and, and grow a business. So the first three months were really spent on just establishing those basics. You know, um, getting that technology in place so that we understood the platforms we were using, what we were using those platforms for, where information could be shared, what we're going to put in different places, all of that kind of stuff. And then working with David and Will on planning. You know, there had been, uh, I think David will forgive me for saying, limited forward planning in terms of... Uh, what planning? Yeah, exactly. What planning? I think I went over to, to Austin to hang out with, with Will and David back in May, sort of again, I was still working part time and still working at Decoded. They, they knew I was going over there. Uh, and we sat down in a room and we got some spreadsheets out. And it was kind of the first time that any kind of business planning or budgeting or anything like that had, had been done. But it was an incredibly valuable exercise for me to understand more about the business, to get under the covers of that kind of stuff. Uh, and to introduce them to my way of working. And I think that was really important to get together physically early on in that relationship, especially for a fully remote business. Do you think that's like a foundational thing that even if you're a fully remote team, to to get that baseline together where you can be in a room, you can feel each other's energy, you can you know see each other face to face, do you think that just should just be a part of the setup when you're starting to work with people? Especially for, you know, I was the third member of a two-person leadership team 
So for that to shake itself out, you know, I, I was very nervous coming into that. You know, these guys have worked together for years. They're really good friends. They're really close to each other. I had to get in a room with them. Also, I had to work out whether I made a terrible mistake. And they need to work out whether they made a terrible <laughs> mistake. If you didn't enjoy hanging out and being in a room together, then this was not going to work. You know, fundamentally, if you don't like spending time with the people you're in that relationship with, I think it was incredibly important. And it really sealed that I'd made the right decision. At the end of those, I think it was only three days, something like that. You know, we all we all sort of said to each other, it feels like we've been working together for years. This feels like a relationship that's been going back a long time. And that was really valuable to start getting that planning in place and start laying the foundation for a more planned and slightly more structured and mindful journey that we were going to go on for, for the next couple of years. So that was the first bit. And then from there, it was organizing finance, getting those systems in place. Uh, and then once sort of, I think that was the first three months of baseline. Like let's get to a baseline of everyone knows how we communicate. Everyone knows what we're doing. Everyone knows how we work. Then breathe and start thinking about where we're going to go as we move from one to two. So David, on your side, three months, a lot of change happening, baseline being built, foundation being built. How did it feel? Was it a relief? Was it scary? Uh, was it exciting? What what were the emotions going into all that? Yeah, I remember it's all sort of encapsulated in one story. So after Chris joined, I took a few weeks off and I was designing a production studio in Austin. And so I took a trip to France to get inspiration for it. And I remember I was in Southern France and I get a I get a text that says, hey, Chris wants to go to Slack. And I popped into, we were communicating over email at the time. I get a Slack notification. And I had made a commitment for the entirety of our company to never use an instant messenger platform. And, you know, Newton has his laws of gravity and David had his laws of no Slack. And... <laughs> I remember sitting at breakfast saying, how am I going to respond to this? And there was one way of responding to this, which is absolutely not kick Chris off the can and say, hey, we didn't even talk about this. And I said, you know what? Chris is in charge now. We're using Slack. And he was totally right about it. And I think that it's in moments like that where you really decide what this relationship is going to be all about. And... You cannot micromanage people. Like the way that I treat my leadership team is that all of them are the CEOs of their worlds. And we work together four times a year to the beginning of the year, we set high level goals for the company and OKRs. And then we have four admin weeks throughout the year. And I'm very involved in planning. And also at a company level, we can talk about this. I'm pretty principled in terms of the way that we're going to function as a team. But insofar as things are aligned with the OKRs, insofar as they're aligned with the principles, it is their world and they run the ship. And I default to trusting them more than I trust myself. I definitely want to dive into the principles, but I want to backtrack. What was your mentality about like the no Slack rule or the no chat messenger? What, what was your feeling? Because I, I do... I do see the other side where Slack can become a cluster and you're constantly reacting to it. So... Was that where it was coming from or was there something else there? Yeah, I don't think it's good to be constantly on if you're trying to do deep work. And if you're not careful with Slack, it's 
the line I love is that it's an all-day meeting with no agenda. And you're constantly expecting pings. There's constant back and forths. And I had worked, I'd interned at a few companies that had Slack, and then I worked at one, and it was horrible. We did not use it well. Everything was urgent with a capital U. Everything was a priority. And it drove me crazy. And I didn't want that. I didn't want that for myself. I didn't want to build a company that was like that. And what I realized is that there were a lot of advantages to Slack in terms of searchability and in terms of the key thing about Slack is that conversations are structured around topics instead of people. And that is the fundamental paradigm shift. And that's very smart. But frankly, I still wish that there was a rule that you would send a Slack message and then the person wouldn't receive it for five minutes or vice versa, that every message has to wait five minutes. Because the problem with Slack is the instantaneity. And we have this heuristic as a society that less friction and more instantaneity is always better. And that is not the case at all. And if we had a world where, for example, on weekends, Slack's defaulted towards sending Monday at 7 a.m., or we had a world where Slack defaulted to having a little bit of latency in the communication, people would be a lot more thoughtful. And that still bothers me about Slack. But everything in life is a trade-off, and I'm happy to accept this one, more than happy to accept this one. It's way better than email, way better than iMessage. But Chris and I have been very deliberate around setting expectations around Slack. For example, even last week, we had a big debate around what are the expectations around around a message. So one side of the debate was, should we have the average be five hours? And should we say, hey, we expect a message within five hours? And ultimately, we zoomed we zoomed out. We said, actually, no, that's not right. Like, this is a place where we're going to be a little bit less prescriptive. And we're going to understand that, hey, sometimes five hours is way too long. And sometimes it's short. And you can take longer to, to respond to a Slack message. But we're still trying to figure it out. But man, I do wish I could get into the code base and tweak a few things. It does sound like there needs to be some parameters because I also agree. I, I am uh, going through an email addiction problem and trying to not constantly check my email. Uh, and it's like I do need a forceful pause to be able to disconnect and do that deep work. It's impossible to context switch. And it just uses all of your mental energy that could be put toward better things when you're reactive to things all the day long. Um, let's jump back to the principles. David, talk to us about your approach to the principles for rite of passage. And then, Chris, I'd love to hear how that's translated into you sculpting the operational side. Yeah. So I have a very dear mentor who has bought more than 100 companies, has done extremely well in his career. And we were having a conversation a few months ago, and he told me a story of back in 96 or 97 he was hosting the company holiday party. And their strategy for growing the company was to go get the best engineers in the world. And what he thought was, hey, these are really smart people. I need to always be entertaining them with something new every time I talk to them. And his director of HR came up to him at the company holiday party and said, hey, you're getting it all wrong. Rather than saying something different every time, you have to say the same thing every time. And so he's at the company holiday party and his director of HR goes, you have, you have three things that you can say at your speech tonight, no more than three things. Keep it simple. So he gets wasted, gives the talk, <laughs> and he's so scared. And after the talk, the employees come up to him and they say, oh my goodness, I've never heard you speak so clearly in your life. That was incredible. We have such a sense of mission, such a sense of purpose. 
and we feel so aligned. So it's been 26 years now, and his whole strategy has just been saying the same things over and over and over again with different stories and different ways to, to, to say them and constantly repeating the same things. And I've taken that to heart. And I think Jeff Bezos does the same thing, that when you scale a company, it's not just about scaling people, scaling operations. It's about scaling decision-making. And what we've done is we've thought deeply about what are our ways of working? What do we believe? What is the spirit? What is the quality bar? How do we go out and build the world's best writing school? And I've codified that into principles that I just repeat constantly. And what those allow me to do is, first of all, I have stories for every single one of them, both internally inside the company and outside of the company. And then whenever we praise somebody, whenever we critique somebody or a project, Whenever we're working, we're always coming back to these ways of working. So one of them, for example, and most of them come out of my own flaws. Like one of them is I have a tendency when I get stressed out to get a little bit serious and a little bit stern to the point of being even a little rude. And it's not something I'm proud of. But because of that, I have a photo of Usain Bolt on my desk. I'm looking at it right now. And our third way of working is Usain Bolt mentality, which means we're going to be the best. We're going to be the fastest. We're going to gun so hard and work our tails off, but also right before the gun goes off, we're going to be high-fiving, we're going to be laughing, we're going to be dancing and having a damn good time out there. And that's how we work. Another one is, hey, we're flipping tables. We're not here to make incremental change in the education industry. We are flipping tables. There is pre-rite of passage history and there is post-rite of passage history. And if I see something that is too inspired by the traditional education system, something that is bland and boring and already exists, wants to put me to sleep, I can just say, hey, I don't see that we're flipping tables there. It's time to flip tables, turn the ambition, energy, humor dial up and come up with something creative. And so we have 10 of these and they allow us to operate in a way that has me be in the room without being in the room very often at all. And that's one of the core components that you need to scale a company. You know what I really adore about that too is company values is a normal thing, right? And you identify words that gen- drive your decision making based on those values. You know, I was leading an offsite for a leadership team and they all were like, oh my God, I hate the word. Can we come up with like a fun tagline that describes the thing instead of just like, you know, um, creativity? Like it just wasn't enough. So I love the idea of you ha- having that image of like, we're going to flip this table. <laughs> we're going to do this and this is what it should feel like because immediately, yes. And you have that image and that, like, I even like feel a little tingly now. Like I want to flip a table. Why not? You know? So Chris, when it came to operations, having this sort of very vivid way of approaching the way of working, how did that translate into building operations? And did it affect how you did things initially? Or did it sort of come in when you started to refine the ways of working? We developed those ways of working over time. You know, we they they weren't they weren't in existence when when I joined joined the company. We had our values and we talked a lot about culture and we sort of threw as a leadership team, I, I think I called it out. We were throwing the words culture and ways of working and values around and using them almost interchangeably. And I, it was when I was in a, I was in a conversation, I think, with, with the rest of the leadership team. I was like, guys, we're using these three words and we've used all three of them to mean, I think, different things, but then also the same thing. And that's not good enough. We need to work out what we actually mean by these different things. So 
we did some thinking, bit of navigating, bit of reading. And we fundamentally decided that your values, the things that you hold dear, and, and we have those, we have our four rite of passage values. Um, and then the ways of working are how you embody those values. Uh, because values should be high level, you know, like creativity. What does that mean? Like, okay, that's a value, right? We understand what it means as a value. But when I turn up for work on a Monday morning, what does creativity mean to me in, in my day-to-day -day job? Like, it, it doesn't mean anything. So we had to translate those values into the ways of working. And then we deliberately not defined a culture because anyone who tries to define a culture is my belief and, and David's belief that you're onto a loser. You can't define culture. Culture is emergent. Anyone who sits down to write, this is what our culture is here. That's not how culture works. Culture wins out, but culture wins out because it forms itself from the principles that you can define. So we can say these are our values, then we can define our ways of working, and then we can see culture that, that comes out of that. And that was a learning process over the sort of first six months that I spent at Rite of Passage is we gradually worked out what our ways of working were and then what we wanted them to be, because you can't just you can't just sit down and go, right, this is how we're going to work and this is a complete change. It has to be a combination of emergent and then codifying. And that's a really important thing, as David says, to do is that you observe and then codify at that early stage before you scale a company. So that when new people are coming in, you can now or even now I've done it in a couple of screening calls and interviews that I've been doing. When someone says, what's it like to work at Rite of Passage? I can just send them the ways of working and go, that's what it's like to work here. This is how we work. If you don't like it, this ain't the place for, for you to work at. So it's incredibly important for, for that growing and scaling company. Hello, fellow thinkers. Now, if you have been a loyal listener of Secret Ops, then you already know about our sponsors, Baron Fig, the company that makes tools for thinkers. Now, I'm totally biased, but I really think that Baron Fig has the best product suite for thinkers and operators alike. And you know what? I'm not the only one that thinks so. Bloomberg said, and I quote, that Baron Fig's products are, quote, high-end and well-crafted, which they absolutely are. Their Confidant notebook is the most delicious notebook that you will use with the most perfect dot grid paper. But it's not just Bloomberg. Actually, fun fact, New York Magazine, they tested 100 pens to find the top pen. And after testing all of those pens, they rated Baron Fig's Squire pen the number one pen. The number one pen. It's not just me, y'all. You got to give them a try. And guess what? We got you hooked up with the discount code. If you go to baronfig.com today, enter in the discount code SECRET20 and get 20% off your next order of $50 or more. Again, that's SECRET20 and get 20% off your next order of $50 or more. Oh, I'm like so jealous that you're going to get to see all this for the first time because they're, they're, their products are so delicious. Anyway, uh, enjoy, have fun, let us know how you use the tools, and let's get back to the show. How it feeds into operations, I think, obviously, the initial base setting was initial base setting. We had to get that stuff done because that's like, well, we need functioning finance systems, functioning, all, all of that kind of stuff. But then as we develop from that, as we've started to become more sophisticated, started to think about how do we set objectives? How do we carry out performance reviews? How do we what is the management system of our company which is something that we were we've sort of relaunched the new version of it back in january of this year that's when i've really lent on those ways of working so things like usain bolt mentality like doesn't need to be boring and i guess that feeds into when i'm writing operational documentation a lot of it comes from being 
a writing company and pop writing and, and whatever. There's no, and David, I think, called me out early on when I started writing. Hell yeah, I did. <laughs> Documentation. He's like, Chris, when you talk, you've got all these examples and it's fun and you've got this vocabulary or whatever. And then I read what you've written and it's boring. Why have you left all of that early? You put and, me to sleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's a really important point to actually just sort of go, well, just because we're writing about what some people would consider boring, what I actually consider quite interesting stuff about how to train <laughs> fences and how to do this, how to do that. Like, it doesn't need to be boring what you write. Um, and so that feeds into that and that whole sort of idea of how can we make this fun? How can we use stories? How can we get this stuff across that means that people actually buy into what we're doing in operations that I, I think is really important. And then in those ways of working, we've got things like process serves people. Um, and that's a really important feature of operations and again if i come up with something that is maybe slightly too bureaucratic i'll be called back on it by the whole team and that's one of the great things about having them written down is it's not just the leadership team who can do that anyone in the company can go chris doesn't feel like this process is serving people here this feels like and then sometimes it's like okay well actually this is why and this is why we need this and there's a few things that you don't have the context of so we need to do that but it empowers people to call me out because there's a way of working. It's not them versus me. It's them pointing at this sign on the wall and going, dude, this doesn't feel like processors, people. Are you sure about this? And that's a really healthy, uh, healthy thing. And then things like work as soul craft. You know, it's not just a case. That's another one of our ways of working. Don't just bash out the first thing to do. I think our example of that that I can think about with operations is pay rises and pay reviews. How do pay reviews work? And this is something that, you know, I saw done badly in previous companies and I've seen done badly all over the place. And I think it's a really important thing. And you could just say, well, pay rises, just managers put in a record. Well, that would be the easy thing to do. But actually work as soul craft means that there is almost an imperative on me that if I'm going to come and say, like, this has got to be not just a way of getting pay reviews done. It's got to be the best way of getting pay reviews done that any company has ever done. And so to come up with that, I went and spoke to people. I read a load of stuff. I interviewed people. I looked at people doing it badly, looked at people doing it well. And that then meant that we've come up with this, I think, beautiful way of doing pay reviews. We'll see. We haven't actually tested it yet. But that goes back to that work of Soulcraft. It's not just what's the, what's the quickest, easiest thing I can do. It's what's the best thing I can do to make this the best way of operating. So... I hear you on the on finding the best way about it and approaching it in that that sense of like you're building this from the ground up. You're not just taking one thing and doing the thing. Like you're trying to find the best way for rite of passage. How do you balance that level of work with time? Startups, smaller companies, you're always balancing time with the amount of work you can put into something. So how do you do it? Yeah, well, we have answers uh, in, our, yes. in our ways of working. So one of the books that really impacted me was Amp It Up by Frank Slootman. And he basically has three principles that he uses to lead his companies. The first is increase the tempo. The second is raise the standards. And the third is narrow the focus. And the third one is the most important. Every company isn't focused enough, basically. And it is a constant battle of narrowing the focus. Projects are power laws. The best projects for you to take on are orders of magnitude more impactful than the average ones. The most important goals that you can hit are orders of magnitude more impactful 
than the average ones. And so what we try to do is we begin every year with focusing on what do we want to do? And we think of that qualitatively, we think of it quantitatively. Then we begin every quarter with doing that as a doing that as uh, OKRs, where every team and every individual finds the things that matter most. And I review every single team OKR and many of the individual ones. And I say, how do we narrow the focus? How do we narrow the focus? How do we narrow the focus? Do less, but better. And if you can properly narrow the aperture of what you're doing, you can become like a laser. And the reason that a laser is so strong is because the light is concentrated in a very narrow aperture towards a specific place. And that's what we want to do. That's the advantage that small companies have against big ones is we can focus on a very specific way of thinking about education and a very specific project set. And if we do that, that is the trade-off that we make so that we can then increase the tempo and work quickly and raise the standards in everything we do and get that work as soul craft. Well, that's beautiful too, because then you're also creating this culture of being able to push back lovingly to say, hey, we need to narrow this. We want this to be of this quality. You just, I feel like you're bitten off more than we can chew here in this time frame. Let's actually make this achievable. And that's something I, I feel like a, a lot of companies don't do where they're like, oh, I think, think this, this might be too big, but you don't want to rock the boat too much. So you don't say it, but the amount of work and energy and stress that you're saving just by narrowing your focus, it just compounds over time. Yeah, Russ, Russ Laraway puts it really well. He talks about prioritization being an exercise in subtraction, not addition. Um, and that's something that we really, we really believe in. Um, get rid of the stuff that doesn't matter. Focus on what does matter. Do that really well. Then come back to the rest of it. And we also have like much more tactical things that we're meeting skeptical. That's one of our ways of working. So we don't have time just absorbed by meetings that go on and update meetings. None of that stuff happens. We write stuff down. We believe in deep work. We protect time to do all of that kind of stuff. Um, and we do that really intentionally. And I think that means that I can have a whole day where I don't speak to anyone else in the team, sometimes two days a week that I don't have those conversations. And that gives me the time to go, I'm going to go do some academic study on how we do pay reviews. And that allows that deep work. And I think David alluded that to that right at the beginning. It's one of the beautiful things about remote work is that it gives you that space to be able to do those deep dives without people grabbing you and bothering you. I mean, it's got some downsides in different ways, but it allows us to really focus in and produce workers' software. And also the language there is very, very intentional. Meeting skeptical. Skeptical means we default towards pushing away. But when a meeting needs to happen, it needs to happen and we make sure it happens well. I will not go to a meeting unless there's an agenda. And we try to make sure that that's the case inside the entire company. The person who calls the meeting is responsible for the agenda and it has to be written out enough in advance that everybody else can not only read it, but comment on it before. We basically, we use Tuesdays to run the company. So all of our internal meetings, our one-on-ones happen on Tuesdays. What happens is all the people that I work with, they prepare a one-on-one -on -one document in advance of our meetings. Then what I do is I go in and I comment on the meeting agenda before it begins. And by doing that, I knock off about 50% of the things that we need to discuss just because we can get it done in text. And what it does is the 
thing that takes the longest in the meeting is the contacts load. Well, so let me tell you this. And they go into some, some crazy story. They talk about their emotions. Like the, the, the conversation just expands into infinity. And now something that could have taken literally 30 seconds takes 10 minutes. And that's what kills meeting efficiency. And so what we do is we go in, we're always prepared with an agenda. We try to comment in the agenda as much as possible. And then once we have the agenda and the comments and everyone's read through it, you won't believe how our how efficient our meetings can be once a pair of people or a team have worked together for about two or three months. So I will say as somebody who's made so many agendas and nobody reads them, it's refreshing to hear one, that they're actually being used and that two, it's used to engage and refine the conversation. The level of detail you put in agendas, I wrote about this uh, on LinkedIn last week of my sort of thing to, thing to share with everyone, is that the way that an agenda becomes effective is that there should be enough written about the point you want to raise in the agenda for the discussion to take place in that document. And that's the thing that people don't do. So an example would be, you know, if someone put in our leadership agenda document that we that we work out of, and that's one of the most, you know, that's where the sort of complex or detailed agenda came from initially. If someone put in their cohort timing, and you can imagine agenda item four, cohort timing, the timing of which we're going to do the cohort. Nowadays, if I wrote that in our leadership idol, I would just get a comment, just a list of like question mark, question mark, what timing, what are you talking about? What does this mean? Because now instead of writing cohort timing, I would write something like, the flagship cohort that's coming up in spring this year, one week of it overlaps with David being away in South Africa. We've got two options, three options. We can move it forward by a week. That would be this date to this date, move it back by a week, this date to this date, or we can do it and we just don't have David for a week of it. Thoughts. And then from that, the conversation, boom, boom, boom. That means that that's not going to take up time in the meeting because everyone will just green ticket. Yep, yep, great, move it forward a week. Or Will will come in and say, I vote move it forward a week. David's like, yeah, I'm great with that. Aaron's like, works for me, gives me an extra week happy days. That's then 20 minutes because it would take five minutes in a meeting of four of us, 20 minutes that we've saved by having that detail. But it only works and it only turns agendas into living documents if there's enough detail in there and you have to hold each other to account to do that. And David's been fantastic at that because it, and, you know, it's so easy to just, I'll just stick it in the agenda and then I'll bring it up in the meeting. And you need your colleagues to be like, what do you mean, dude? Like, what are you talking about? This is not enough detail for me to log on on the morning and understand exactly what we're going to talk about. You do that, meetings become so much better. And it also pairs beautifully with the days that you can just have head down quiet space to actually think about those things too. It all goes together. <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, it has to go hand in hand. You won't have the time to review the agenda. You won't have the time to make a detailed agenda if you don't have that space carved out to do that deep thinking and really think through decisions. You know what? Like, what you're saying there is key. It all goes together. We're not trying to build a company for every single person. We're actually trying to build a company that most people would hate working at. But <laughs> the people who like working at Rite of Passage, we want to make sure that they love working at Rite of Passage, that they feel respected, and that they feel like this is a place where they can thrive, where they have agency and autonomy. And we want to pair that with what we need to do to deliver a best-in-class product. And so we're not saying that this is the right way to build a company. We're saying that this is one way to build a company f that works with the product that we're delivering. And what I would say is that if you work remotely because you're pulling from a global talent pool, 
it helps to be more distinct, more opinionated, because on the internet, the more singular you are, people think, oh, that means fewer people will be drawn to me. It's actually the opposite. On the internet, because the internet is an amazing matching tool. That's fundamentally the first 25, 30 years of the internet has basically been a matching tool. It has been eBay. People want to sell Pez dispensers with people want to buy Pez dispensers. Uber, I have an open car, I want to ride. Airbnb, I have an open house, I need a place to stay. That is the fundamental killer app of the internet, matching. And so what we want to do is not only codify our ways of working, but talk about our ways of working and have people from around the world say, oh my goodness, I'm so aligned, not just with your mission, but how you work. And we want to be a 12 out of 10 for those people and have a high variance rather than being pretty good to a lot of people. This also ties into immediately thinking about the four-day work week and businesses trying out that as an experiment. You know, these are all things that if we start to communicate the understanding of when it works, when it doesn't, because we're all doing these little micro experiments within our own organizations, it can help others to sort of find find their own path and their own combination, almost like a recipe, because <laughs> it's always going to look different based on the business and the culture and the industry and the region. It's about cross-pollinating, though, to get that to happen. Uh, now, if I were to zoom out a little bit, y'all have worked together, you have, uh, you know, like the salt and pepper thing, like you've got different skill sets, but they're similar. What would you say, I guess, David, I'll start with you. What would you say is the thing that you have, uh, learned to appreciate the most about Chris, but specifically about having an operator in the business? One thing that we talk a lot about is many years ago, it was a really good exchange on Twitter. And somebody was asking Elon Musk about the Tesla car product. And he said, no, our cars aren't the product. The factory is the product. The factory is the product. And if we can get the factory right, then we get the cars right. And that's how I think about what Chris does, is Chris is building our fundamental product that everybody leans on. Every team at Rite of Passage depends on an operations layer that Chris runs, and that operations layer underpins the entire business. And if we can get that right, we have a firm foundation that we can build on on top of that. And that's why the work that Chris and I do is so intentional, because it begins with, with operations in so many ways. I think what Chris does uniquely well is... He is both detail-oriented, has a heart on fire, which is one of our core sayings at Rite of Passage, but also works quickly and works at startup speed. And it's hard to find people who are as chipper and jolly as Chris, but also as efficient, and then at the same time have efficiency, but still have a heart on fire. And in the synthesis of those things, that's what we look for when we hire, and it's very hard to find, and Chris does that well. Well, now, Chris, you know I got to flip it on you. Uh, <laughs> having watched David in this last year, you know, watching him as a founder, what he's built, what he's wanting to build in the future, you know, what are some takeaways for you? What are the traits that, that you have learned to appreciate over this last year? I get asked this a lot uh, in interviews. When I'm interviewing, people say, what's it like to work with David? Um, and <laughs> I... <laughs> He's here. He knows what I say. I think David is everything that you want in a leader of a startup in that he has a very clear vision, incredibly clear, 
is passionate about it, knows where he wants to go, but will change his mind without any ill feeling if you can convince him or disagree with him or explain to him why the current direction and stuff is wrong. Which I think, yeah, it's summed up. There's a there's a bon mot of a deeply held or uh, what is it? Strong opinions strong lightly opinions held. held. Yeah. yeah, strong opinions loosely held. And that's something that David is, is really, really good at. And I sort of experienced that early on. I think before I'd even joined full time, we had um, a bit of an issue with, with something that, that had come up during the cohort or post the previous cohort that had just finished. And David and Will had this view of how we should deal with it. It was pretty nerve wracking. I had to sort of say in this meeting, sorry, guys, I think you're both wrong here. I think this is not what we should be doing. This is what we need to do because of X, Y, and Z. And both of them just went, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. And that was the reason we went there. And that, that is, that, but that is so rare for someone to be able to, you know, someone who hadn't even started working at your company yet to turn around to the CEO and the CPO and say, I think you're wrong. And for both of them to go, okay, yeah. And that's continued. That's incredibly important with how we work as a leadership team, that respectful challenge, that respectful debate. David doesn't always do what I say. I'm not always right etc etc but that is incredibly rare i think within a ceo to have someone who is so open to feedback so open to challenge but also so clear about where we're going because it's not just a case of saying whatever the next person comes into the room suggests you know oh let's go with them let's go with their view let's go with their view it's about having a viewpoint but then being open to anyone disagreeing with that and that's not just me that's anyone across the business will be listened to and i think that's rare and special yeah it's a fine balance too so before we get to some rapid fire questions, if you are listening and you are a founder of a business, a CEO, a COO, an operations director, I, I want you to get some advice that you can take away uh, just from this year that you've had working together. And Chris, I'm going to flip the script. I'll have you go first. And I'll give David some little time to think about this. Um, what would you give as far as a piece of advice to other operators when it comes to working with founders and CEOs and building the operations for a business with what you know now? The most important thing I think would be write things down, write things down. And this is very right of passage here. This is obviously what we talk about. The writing brings clarity, but by writing things down and sharing them in a written format rather than a presentation format or in a meeting and that kind of stuff, it gives people the space to absorb them, to comment on them, and to create a debate in a less hot, less heated kind of way. It creates artifacts and it allows you to point back to things. And then it does allow you to sometimes do, once things have been accepted, they're written down, they're agreed. Three months later, you can sometimes immediately be like, hey, mate, we agreed that three months ago and we wrote it down. And that's sort of how we have to do things. And that can be, I call it my passive aggression link to notion. Uh, which I do with a lot of the leadership team every now and then. It's like, why is this like this? Why have we known? Or what, what do I do in this? And then it's just, you know, I warn everyone, passive aggressive link to Notion coming up and then share the link to the documentation of where we've written it down and where we agreed with that. So I think that's really important. The other thing, particularly about building a great relationship, I would say is read the same books. Get, if you've got books you're reading about operations or your CEO's got books they want to read, your founder's got books they want to read about business, read the same books. David and I, like, we absolutely love the great CEO within, the one-minute manager, although it's really hokey, but the principles of it. Get Things Done, Radical Candor, When They Win, You Win. Like, these are all books that we both read, and that means that we have now a shared vocabulary and a shared understanding of these different things. It doesn't mean adopt everything that's in them, 
But you can, it's just as you sort of go, we don't want to do that. I disagreed with that. As well as to be able to say, go and read that chapter again. I think that's really important. Or do you remember the example of, or X, Y, and Z? That allows you to have a much more structured uh, conversation than you might have been able to otherwise. All right, David, you're up. A year into having a COO on board as a founder, knowing what you didn't know a year ago, what would you advise other founders and CEOs to understand about the process of building operations alongside an operator? I think be really clear about what you want is a really big one. I think Chris has a very keen sense of what I'm going for. I think I have a very keen sense of what he's going for. And we've worked it out together in conversation and in writing. And people need structure. They need a vision. They need a visceral feeling of what they're trying to build. And Chris and I have worked very hard on making that the case. And what I'm trying to do is codify as much of how I think into language and stories and clear visions for the future so that people have this visceral feeling of what we're trying to build. This is a course operations thing, but you know we're trying to build an editing program. And there's one version of it, which is where I started, which is, hey, let's have a whole team of editors to make sure that people can get editing on their writing. And what I say to the team is, that's not what we're going for. What we're going for is a team of editors so that students can submit something before they go to sleep at night and wake up with their writing having been edited by the time their eyes open in the morning. You hear how much more visceral that is, how much more clear it is? It doesn't matter how many editors we have. It doesn't matter. What matters is that feeling that I can be inside of Rite of Passage, and by the time I wake up after submitting something right before I go to sleep, I can finish my article before I start work in the morning. And it's those sort of visceral stories. That's how you create a sense of aliveness. And that's always what we're going for as we build Rite of Passage. Thank you both just for sharing your experience. I, I think that so many other people are going to just learn a ton and be able to take away a lot of this into their day-to-day -day life. And the whole goal is to be able to work together harmoniously. That's going to look different for every team, every combination of operators, founders, CEOs. But if you can take a little bit away and just try it out, it, it's a start for what it could be in the future. All right. Let's do some fun rapid fire questions, shall we? Uh, get to know about you too, okay? Uh, David, I'm going to have you answer these first. And Chris, I'll have you go second just so that we get a nice little flow going. Okay. What is your favorite part of the day? My writing time. Better be. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris? Uh, I love being in Europe and having quiet mornings before this lot wake up. But then I also love it when they all wake up in the US as well. It's like it gets about one and then they're like, oh, morning. Now I've been talking to myself all morning and then everyone comes and joins me. So I love both the quiet and then when they all come online as well. It's all cool. What most inspires you on a day to day basis? Well, I have a mood board right in front of me. So let me tell you what's mm. on my mood board. Uh, there's a, there's a Walt Disney in Disneyland. There's EDM visuals and Casey Neistat, uh, Versailles, the Gardens of Versailles, Usain Bolt. And the person who I'll share is Brunello Cuccinelli. He runs a eponymous cashmere brand that's based in a small little village in Italy. 
and they're public on the Italian stock market. He's been running the company for decades now. And they're all about quality and building a company that's also a joy to work at and very humanistic in their orientation. And some of the things that they do are everybody comes in at 8 a.m. and leaves at 5 p.m. and they do a 90-minute lunch every single day. You're not allowed to have your phone or your computer in any meetings because you need to know your information by heart. You're not allowed to send an email to more than two people inside of the company because they don't want people to be overwhelmed with with information. And they make things that are very, they make things in ways that are fair to the animals and that are fair to the environment. And I think that Brunello Cuccinelli is a company that I deeply admire in terms of how principled they are. And I think that the world is better because that company exists at the level of what customers feel, at the level of what their employees go through, at the level of the life that Brunello has been able to cultivate for himself. And it'll take me decades, but I want to build a company that is very similar to what he's done. Chris, what inspires you? Yeah, since I've joined Rite of Passage, I've got so back into reading and improving my craft of operations. And every time I read a good business book or a good book about people management, you know, Radical Candor reduced me to tears because it's so eloquently described the way that I've been trying to lead and be a manager and be in business. So those fantastic examples, uh, I think, when I read those books, just to be the best version of a leader, a manager, an operator, that's what really inspires me. All right. This is maybe a tough one, but what is the best thing you've bought under $50? My laminated mood board is awesome. I have it on my mirror at home. It's my phone background. It's on all my desks and it's all over the place. And I love having this thing. I have this little image that I look at a hundred times a day for the future I want to create. And it fires me up. And right next to it, I have our ways of working, all of our internal sayings and all of our company goals that I look at as I work. And so whenever I'm on a meeting, I can just tilt my head down, you know, 10 degrees, and I can see my, my entire vision for my future. I just got to say the uh, added detail that being laminated made me love it even more. Okay. Uh, Chris, how about you? We got a laminator. So we have a printer and a laminator to make sure that whenever yes. I want to change it, I can change it within 30 minutes. Now, the real question is, do you also have a label maker? That That's the trifecta. I do have a label maker. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. Looking around for mine. You should be a maker. Yeah, we knew it was a proper office once we once we got a laminator moved in. Then you know you know it's a real company, right? That's- Although it was funny because the label maker arrived in a box that looked like Godiva chocolates, and I was so confused. <laughs> um, Chris, what about you? What is the best purchase you've made under fifty bucks? So I was going to say something from my train set, but then there's an alarmingly few number of things that. Uh, worth less than $50 on my train set, which is one of the big problems with model railways once you get into them is it's an absolute money sink. David and I send each other photos of our model railway presents that we got at Christmas. And then we don't tell each other, well, we tell each other how much they cost. We don't tell the rest of our family because it it gets embarrassing. So I'm sure there's some stuff on those under $50, but I am going to say it's this actually, which is my past pixie. You can see that Ariana, which is a little laminated, it's laminated, um, high-vis, um, 
high-vis sort of traffic camera warning sign. Um, and you can wear it on your back when you're cycling. And it has a magic effect of making motorists know uh, that I'm running video cameras and they give you so much more space uh, when you're out cycling. And this is like 12 bucks, I think, 9.99 in pounds. Uh, and it's quite literally a lifesaver. So I would highly recommend that as, uh, as my object. If you had a soundtrack, like you're walking on stage, there's a soundtrack that you want to play to represent you, what song would represent you? I don't do songs. I do EDM live sets, and I would do Porter's Nurture Together Live live set. I did a documentary that I haven't released on Porter Robinson, and he means the world to me. And it's the live sets that really move me much more than individual songs. Chris, do you have a song? Do you have your hype song? Uh, it's the Harry Potter theme track, theme tune. Oh, yeah. Chris goes to Harry Potter World for his birthday every year. It's the uh, one of his days off. Do you have a wand, Chris? This is really important. No, Do you I'm not. have a wand? I'm not a child. Come on. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, the Harry Potter, the Harry Potter theme tune. All right, last question. Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be Walt Disney meets Brunello Cuccinelli meets the friend who you go to when things are difficult and you're working through something hard and there's that person who you go to and they listen to you enough that you feel heard, but they're also proactive enough that you feel like you are reoriented again. Chris, how about you? What do you want to be when you grow up? I have no idea. And I say, I mean, that, that sounds a bit like a flippant response, but it's really not because a lot of the time people ask me about my career and like the trajectory and I have to confess that I have no, I've had no plan. I left university, ran a tent company, massive tents for a long time. And then I stumbled into the amazing world of Decoded because my brother knew one of the founders and then you know, moving on from that, I came to write a passage because it sounded great and it looked like a really good opportunity. I have no idea what the next one or the next one is going to be. Just keep your eyes and ears open and throw yourself into every opportunity that you get and then keep going. So speaking of planning, Mr. Monk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can plan for other people. I just can't plan for myself. That's uh, ah, okay. <laughs> I'm very bad at I think we just got a new insight on Chris. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Ask me again in 50 years time. All right, I'll, I'll set a, a Google reminder for then. David, Chris, this has been truly such a joy and a treat. And I just really appreciate you, first of all, coming up with this idea. This was not my idea. This was their idea. And it was a brilliant one. Um, so I'm just really appreciative, not only for being willing to share your story, um, but also for being quite funny. Um, I'm just going to say it. You, you two are a dynamic duo. I hope to see a stand-up routine soon. Uh, but before we wrap up, where can the audience find you? They're listening. They're connecting with what you're saying. Where should we guide them to, to check out what you're up to? So we write about operations on our website, rightofpassage.school, and we've written out some of the things that we spoke about. For example, there's a memo on there that I wrote to the team around Amp It Up. Remember, increase the tempo, raise the standards, narrow the focus. If you want to do that for your company, just type in Rite of Passage and amp it up, you'll see You'll see that. And then also I'm watching a podcast of my own, How I Write. And imagine if every writer did a book like On Writing by Stephen King, a memoir of the craft. Well, you can't have every person write their own book, so we're doing it on a podcast form. 
So I'm interviewing writers about their craft, how they work, their creative process, how I write. Check it out. Awesome. And Chris, how about you? Uh, well, if you search really hard, you can find me on Twitter, but that is just me banging on about things like past pixies and pro cycling. So, so don't come to that if you want the operations content. Uh, that's all shared on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and every couple of weeks, I share a little bit about what I've learned over the last couple of weeks. Um, although I missed it for a few weeks, which is very not right of passage. But yeah, on LinkedIn, follow me or connect with me on there and you'll see some of this stuff written. Perfect. Secret Apps listeners, I hope you gained as much out of this episode as I have. We will link everything in the description. Thank you both again for sharing your knowledge and your brain. Uh, And please continue to follow us wherever you find your podcast, or you could check us out at secret-ops.com. We will see you next time. Hey, listener. Do you want to be a top operator in business and in life? Well, we at Secret Ops are here to help you do just that. Check out our monthly Secret Ops newsletter with exclusive intel just for you. From bonus content to secret resources, we've given you the VIP access. To sign up, check out the link in the description. And as always, thanks for listening.